0: In our sermon this morning, we're going to study uh, the first obvious uh, example of the office of elder in Scripture. And it's very, very fitting for us um, to say today, um, who leads us as a church and, and why do they lead us? And why do we need leaders? And how do you decide who those leaders are? And what kinds of things are they supposed to do? And what happens when a leader falls? How do you handle that? And so this week it happens that we have scheduled the ordination and the installation. And the difference between the ordination and the installation of an officer is that an officer who is installed is someone who has already been ordained. Ordination is where the leaders of a church lay their hands on a man and pray, setting him apart to an office. Some people say, well, you know, ordination is just something we've made up, you know, and it's a tradition of the church. And, of course, tradition is always bad, right? And, uh, in fact, it's in Scripture. Uh, You remember that Paul exhorts Timothy, the young pastor, to do what? To stir up the gift that is in him by the laying on of hands. And so an ordination is the laying on of hands, calling down the Holy Spirit to put a gift in a man for the office that he's going to bear. Okay? That's what we're doing this morning. An installation is when you again install someone to an office that they already hold. So for instance, this morning um, we have... Uh, I've got to look here a second. Who? Thank you. You knew what I was going to say. Yeah. Dan Sparks is only being installed because Dan has served in the office and then went inactive, sort of, kind of. um, And the other men are going to be ordained. Now, Jeff Moore is being ordained to a different office. So even though he's been ordained to the office of deacon, he'll be ordained to the office of elder this morning. Now, here's what I want you to do. Um, Ask yourself, what does the Bible teach us about officers? And... I I know that it's very difficult um, for us today to think about officers without being suspicious. And if that were not true a week ago, certainly it's true this week. Because Ted Haggard has fallen. And if you don't know about that, you must not even look at Google. (laughs) All right? Ted Haggard was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, the pastor of James Card some of you remember James Card uh, the church James was talking about in the living room when I went or the kitchen when I went berserk you remember that Um, and uh, this is where Chris and Leslie who used to he used to be our college pastor they moved they don't go to his church but it's in they live in Colorado Springs and uh, this pastor has fallen and So this week, everybody's reading about and talking about the fall of an officer of Christ's church. And it would be very, very easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that the improper use of a good thing invalidates the proper use. That's an error we make all the time where we think, well, you know, if um, guns... And I'm not a member of the NRA, but if guns are used to kill people, then guns should be outlawed. And then you run into the nasty problem of having an amendment of our Constitution that actually says that the people need to be able to bear arms. And so you say, yeah, but they're so destructive. And look at Europe and look at Asia. They don't have nearly the crime rate we have. And it has to be guns. Well, guns have a valid use, and you can't invalidate something that has a valid use just because it's used improperly. Uh, I had a man in my church who used a wood splitter to commit suicide. I'm not leading a crusade to get rid of wood splitters. All right. Now, take those principles and apply them to Ted Haggard's falling this week. It would be very easy to grow cynical About officers in the church. And to say, well, you know, wouldn't it be much better if we just didn't have that kind of vulnerability? Everybody's disappointed. Everybody looks at us as hypocrites. And so, you know, what's the point? We don't need leaders. We don't need men standing up in front of us teaching. We can just sit at home and read our own Bibles. And and my dad can talk to me. And I love my dad. The problem is your home family is not a church. Does that make sense to you? And the problem is also that the Scripture tells us that God has appointed elders over the church. And the office of elder is not synonymous with the office of father. There are some fathers, the Bible says, are not able to control their own home, so they may not be elders. And so obviously, every man that's a father isn't an elder because some men can't control their own homes. So how in the world are they going to control the church? Which, of course, is hilarious to me. Because that shows us, incidentally in Scripture, how hard it is to lead a church and to, and, and, and to cause people to get along with each other. <laughs> but I know this isn't true in your marriage, right? Your marriage is fine, right? You don't have any problems, right? And, of course, our church doesn't have any fighting, right? Right? Any of you fought with someone outside of your home, somebody in this church in the last week? Have you fought with them? Okay, Wayne has. Tim has. David has. Anybody else fought with somebody here at this church? David? No women. Oh, that's just so sweet. Oh, there is an honest woman here, and that's Don Any other women fought with somebody at this church? Okay, have you badmouthed somebody at this church this week? Raise your hand. Okay. Boy, I'm glad there's so many of you that just don't have those problems. (laughs) Now, some of you are visitors, and don't worry, I know you haven't badmouthed anybody here because you don't know them yet. And the minute you do know them, you will badmouth them. (laughs) And probably when you leave here this morning, you'll badmouth me for talking about how people badmouth people in the church, you know. one of the most difficult problems anyone in leadership has today is dealing with the cynicism of people against leadership. Every single time I preach on God calling himself father, I am dealing with people who have had bad fathers and therefore are jaded about the whole concept of father and do not want to pray to God as their father. All right. Now, do you think it's a new thing that leaders fail you? Do you think Ted Haggard invented that? You know what we had in family devotions this week? Now, does everybody know, is there anybody here that doesn't know about Ted Haggard? Okay. Ted Haggard is a guy who is the, chair, the president of the NAE uh, and pastor of 15,000-member church, New Life something or other, or New Covenant or something, in Colorado Springs. And he's very handsome and that's important and he's thin and that's important too. And he fell in a couple of different ways and has been uh, disciplined yesterday by an administrative group that his church delegated the issue to. They handled it very quickly, which is very good. Um, and if you don't know that, as of yesterday, they have stated that he's guilty of sexual immorality as well as other things and that they'll be more specific in the future. Um, So that's that's the news for you. So the question is this week, um, isn't it better just not to have leaders at all? Or isn't it better to have pastors that live in fear of the deacons so that he can't get too big headed and he can't fall into sin? As a matter of fact, isn't it better really to just have elders and to not have a distinction among the elders? You know, where we're all just elders together. And the pastor will submit to the elders. Now, what's the problem with having a pastor who has no authority over the other elders? Or if you want to say it, what's the problem with having an elder who focuses on preaching and teaching having no authority over the other elders? I'll tell you what the problem is. Who disciplines the elders then? you say, well, that's why we should be in a denomination. I say, are you kidding me? I'm in a denomination. You're going to tell me that in a denomination they discipline the elders of a church? Don't you remember what was said about uh, the the apostles? I mean, about Jesus Christ? They said it's better that one man die for the sake of the people. Every denomination gets rid of the pastor. They never get rid of the board of elders. I've never seen a case where a denomination that I've been a part of has disciplined the elders of a church. Does that mean that the elders never sin? No. 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 So we come back to the question, why not just make it that we have a bunch of elders and they're all equal? And here's the problem with that. The problem is that anybody who's ever worked on a farm knows that on a farm, whoever feeds the cattle... Is the one the cattle's come to and moo. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is always a man who gets better production in the milk parlor than any other man. And that's the man who day in, day out, morning and night feeds the cattle. And if that farmer leaves for a weekend or for a day and he has a farmhand come in, even if that farmhand has been in that milk parlor with him many times helping to milk, The production will go down when that different man comes in. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm not saying you're cows. I'm saying you're sheep. And a pastor's a shepherd. Does that mean that the other elders are are not shepherds? No, they are shepherds. But the the point is, every single week, I'm getting up and I'm preaching to you. And if it's not me, it's going to be Stephen and David. So when you have really heavy problems, who do you go to? You go to the men who week in, week out, feed you. Now, some people would say, I've preached in a church in Harrisburg where they had uh, only elders, no pastor. They were very firm on that. It was a denomination that that's its raison d'etre, the reason it exists, okay? And this man <coughs> uh, introduced himself to me as the, le- the, the, the the but he didn't say the lead elder, but he said the lead elder. Isn't that interesting? And it turns out he preached the vast majority of the sermons, and it turned out that he led the elders' meetings. But he's not a pastor. Well, you know what they say about a rose by any other name? That she had a rose? That's Shakespeare, I think? Okay. A pastor by any other name. You know how the Christian church always tells us, for instance, that they're not a denomination. denomination by any other name is a denomination. Listen, it has always been true of the church down through history that there have been men in the church who have uniquely given themselves to preaching and teaching and who are uniquely looked to by the sheep when things get desperate in their lives, in the lives of their children, in their marriage. The fact that those men sometimes commit adultery use crystal meth, steal from the church, are egotists, use obscenities from the pulpit, is nothing new. It's nothing new. You remember David, Pastor Carell, teaching us last week about the state of the church at the time of the Reformation. Alright, the church is reformed and is always reforming. This last week, we're reading the account of David and Bathsheba. David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. What did David do with Bathsheba? He committed adultery. She got pregnant. Then he tried to cover it over. By what? Bringing her husband home from the front lines. But that man was an honorable man and would not go into his wife when the other men he was fighting with didn't have that privilege. And so he slept, what? Out in the street. David was having a problem he couldn't cover up the pregnancy if he didn't sleep with her so david called and i'm just telling you what scripture says don't accuse me of being graphic and all this stuff it's i'm not being as graphic as the scripture is all right so then david does what david thinks aha what does he think i'll get him drunk clearly says david got him drunk and then sent him home to his wife and then what happens Well, he still will not go into his wife. And so then what does David do? David sends a message to his commander, Joab, and he says, Put him at the front at the most intense fighting and then withdraw. So Joab does this, he dies. And then Joab sends a message back to David, tell him that we lost some good men. If David, King David, the king, is angry, then tell him that not to worry. Her husband's dead. You know? We had to lose a few good men so that he would die. Now, this is King David. Do you want to talk about Abraham? Do you want to talk about what Abraham did with his wife? Do you remember what... The Apostle Paul says about himself. I was what? Among other things, a blasphemer. This is the Apostle Paul. How about Peter? Is Peter a paragon of virtue? Is he a man that's just head and shoulders above every other man? What was Peter known for? Peter was known for opening his mouth before he thought. Oh Lord, you know, this is neat. Let's set up tents here and we can just stay on top of this mountain forever. You know, Lord, you will never, ever suffer and die. And Jesus says, get away, get behind me, Satan. So there's nothing new about Ted Haggard. It has always been true that pastors have fallen. Pastors are no better than the people in Scripture. And if you ever are enticed, To believe the lies in Christian magazines and Christian publishing companies and Christian websites, that finally we have a king who's handsome, who's wealthy, who 15,000 people go to his church, and he's the president of the NAE, and he has a weekly conference call with the people at the White House. I mean, guys, it's pathetic. Is this what Moses was like? It's just awful that we get sucked into this thing. We always want a king. You know? Some guy that's like hyper handsome and not fat like me, you know? And and never makes a fool of himself in public, you know? And will never ever have bad breath. You know, I mean, you look at the picture, you know he doesn't have bad breath. Listen, it's a delusion. It's worldly. It's idolatry. We have one God. Who is the God? Who is he? Is he me? Is he Stephen? Stephen's a nice man. When Stephen preaches, Stephen has order. Is it Stephen? Huh? Is it Stephen? Is he God? No, 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 no. His children love him. His wife loves him. They honor him. He gets good counsel. He preaches well. And Stephen is a pathetic excuse for a man. And I love him. I respect him. I can't think of many people I'd rather be rebuked by than Stephen or Dave Carell. But if you get tired of your pastors, then you can think that Wayne Hook is perfect. So, is Wayne perfect, David? No, David Wagner doesn't think Wayne is perfect. Do you think David is perfect? No, uh uh-uh. Well, how about Joe Rice? (laughs) Joe's sitting there and he's going, (laughs) okay so who is our God our God is God and we don't need handsome pictures on the backs of books on video screens at conferences we don't need men who pull down an annual salary of 250,000 from their parachurch reformed ministry we do not need gods we already have one and so one lesson for you is You don't invalidate the office of preacher or teacher or elder or deacon or father. But you also never, ever worship men. Men are not your answer. Your answer is God. Even your father is not your answer if you love your father. It's God. God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so when we come to Exodus, and I want to read through this chapter before we ordain them, what we find is the first example of, and I think you can call it an office. There's debate whether or not this is the office of elder. There's debate whether or not when they uh, set apart the men to handle the offerings and and the food distribution among the widows and acts. There's debate whether that's the founding of the office of deacon and i think those debates are often just worthless because it doesn't matter whether that's exactly when the office anybody who looks at it can see the continuity from that first occurrence to what we have today is the office of elder the office of deacon you understand that so what we see here is the clear planting of the office or of the function of elder among the people of God. Exodus eighteen thirteen to 27. And I'm going to just make comments as we go through. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, immediately, you're asking yourself the question as you read scripture, what is what? What is the next day? And then you ask yourself the question, what is the previous day? I mean, that's what you're supposed to ask there, right? So you think, well, what happened the previous day? So you have to look above in the text. So look above in chapter 18, Exodus chapter 18. And I have to turn there a second, please. Um, And there you see what we started with verse 13, but we go above to the earlier verses and we see Jethro, verse one, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away and her two sons of whom one was named Gershom. For Moses had said, I have been a sojourner in a a foreign land. Gershom means stranger. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help uh, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Uh, We have here this morning a father-in-law who's come to visit his son-in-law and daughter. And when he came, they kissed him. I don't know, but I'm sure they did. And then what did they say? So what's up? And that's what's going on here. They kiss each other and then they look at each other and say, So what's up? How you doing? They go into a tent and they begin to tell each other how they're doing. Okay. And then what do we see in verse eight? Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So you know that much is talked about there. Think of all the account of the place Think of all the account of uh, what went on in the wilderness up until this point. They have a lot to catch up on. What's sweet here is the emphasis is on God and what he did. The emphasis is, and then I said to the people, and then the people said to me, and then I said to the people, well, God did this, God did this, God did this, God sent me to tell Pharaoh this, then Pharaoh did this, then God did this, God did this. Okay, we need to bring God into our conversations and confess our faith. Don't be ashamed of that. If what you really want to say is, God directed me, don't worry about people judging you, thinking that you're pompous to talk that way. Talk that way. Confess your faith in God. i never forget a number of years ago, a man who wrote his doctoral dissertation. You know what he did at the very front of his doctoral dissertation? He, he said, I praise God, or I praise Jesus Christ, who has made me able to write this dissertation. Put it right at the front of his dissertation. <laughs> confess God okay so then what happens Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of Egyptians so Jethro said blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians now I know that the word is greater than all the gods indeed it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people Do you feel a little bit discombobulated with that statement? Uncomfortable? Like, what's that about? Look at it. What does it say? Verse 11, now I know what? Huh? Now I know what? Now, if you were to say that on the university campus, I know that Jesus Christ is greater than all the gods. What would be the response? If you were to go into the lunchroom at the factory, you were to talk to other people, you were to say, now that I know the Lord is greater than all the gods, what would be the response? People would say to you what? What they would say is, what makes your God better than any other God? Right? And that's because our culture is intensely opposed to any statement of superiority of any law, of any God, of anything. They're intensely opposed to it. We are supposed to live in a polytheistic environment, a polyreligionist environment, a diverse environment where we value the diversity over truth. And so if you went in and said, now I know that the Lord is is the greatest of all the gods, they would say to you, who do you think you are? You know, you're wacko. What makes your God any better than any other's gods? And so then what would you do? Well, you would begin to argue about the difference between Jesus Christ and other gods. Right. Well, you know, on the one hand, um, Allah, and on the other hand, Jesus Christ, on the other one hand, the followers of Allah, on the other hand, the followers of Jesus Christ, you know, you begin to make the case, right? Now, this is the way everybody thinks, really, they'll deny it. But everybody does think that there are a whole bunch of gods and they're in competition with each other. It's always been a theme. Always. And you have to understand diversity itself is a God. It's called the pantheon of gods today. It's what the ancient world knew as the pantheon. You know, the many gods that everybody agreed to tolerate, everybody else that held to all the gods. And what they're saying is our pantheon of gods, where no god is superior to any other one, is superior to your one god who is superior to every other god. Do you understand that? Does, Does that make sense to you? Now, here's the problem. Um, to some degree, I'd sucker punched you. Because I'm setting the whole thing up according to what Jethro said to Moses. Which is what? Again, look at it. Now, I know, verse 11, that the Lord is what? Greater than what? All the gods. Now, hear me on this. If you say on the campus, if you say in the lunchroom, if you say in the teacher's lounge that the Lord that we serve is greater than all the other gods, people will be very upset with you, won't they? Huh? Everybody's sitting there looking at me. You should be nodding. Because I think I live in the same world you live in. They'll be very upset with you. Now, try this one on. What is the truly biblical statement? Somebody quote a text of Scripture out loud so everybody can hear it that is actually the biblical way of sowing it that actually shows that Jethro is not yet biblical. But the Lord made the heavens and the earth. All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, if you go on the campus or into the teacher's lounge and you say all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth, what will be the level of intensity compared to if you said, now I know that this God is greater than all the other gods. Will the level of intensity go up or will it go down? It'll go up, won't it? Because now you're not only saying he's superior, but you're saying they are nothings. Do you understand this? So if you read what Calvin says and and, and Matthew Henry say about this text, they point out that Jethro is on a pilgrimage to biblical truth. All right? Now, let me ask you, is Scripture content with ending at that point? What does Scripture end up saying? You start out with, now I know that God is greater than all other gods. And then you go to the statement, all the gods of the nations are idols. You don't end there, do you, in Scripture? Where do you end? Those who worship idols are worshipping what? Demons. If in that teacher's lounge you say, And here we run into my cowardice. What would be the intensity in that lunchroom? In that classroom? In that teacher's lounge? What would it be? Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. Wait, 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 wait. I've got to say this. There is only one God. You may only worship one God. You will either worship demons or you will worship Jesus Christ. That's it. Christianity has never had any testimony, any, except that Jesus Christ is God And that there is no other way to eternity. There's no other path to heaven. There is no other way to be saved. None. And this is why early Christians died all the time. They died because they would not confess that there was any other God. Do you understand this? There was only one God. All they had to do was just bow the knee to the emperor. Just show a little patriotism. You know? They wouldn't do it. Now, do you know what they were always killed for? What was the charge? You know, you go to court, there has to be a charge that you're executed for. What was the charge? You know what the charge was? Generally, two charges. Number one, they were accused of atheism. Why atheism? Because they rejected the pantheon of gods, the diversity of gods, the inclusivity. They said no to it. You know what the other charge that they were killed for was? Anarchy. Why? Because they rejected the pantheon of gods. Because the unity of the Roman Empire was that there was no unity, that there was only diversity, and that we're all agreed to submit to one another's values and gods. And the Christians said no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And brothers and sisters, if you're not prepared to die for that truth, you're ignorant about the world you live in. To those of us that are older, it's very clear that we're being put in a straitjacket and the noose is tightening again. This this world we're in is identical to the ancient world. It's identical. in every way Uh, you know we got a couple of classic scholars here how about homosexuality how about well I won't go into it all Um, it's identical and today you have to choose between this God and all the other gods. And it's not sufficient for you to say, now I know that this God is superior to the other gods. Your biblical confession is there are no other gods. All the gods of the nations are idols. And those who worship their idols are actually engaging in demon worship. This is what scripture says. And I'm not saying you always have to call other people's gods demons. OK, Paul didn't say these Id- these, these altars are are, de- are, are altars to demons. When he went into Athens, but you better be prepared in your heart to realize that you're wrestling with principalities and powers when you try to call people to Jesus Christ. Okay. Then Jethro took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses father-in-law before God. And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing you are doing for the people? Now, when you read about Moses doing this for the people, what do you think about this man, Moses? Do you have any thoughts? What do you know about Moses? What does the Bible say about him? Yeah, humble, meek. Meek and humble. What else do you know about Moses? Moses. I want to shock you again. He wasn't good with words. That's right. When he was first called to leadership, he said, send someone else. You remember that? The burning bush? Send someone else. I'm so in holding of speech. Send someone else. Now, what is he doing? Ain't nobody else, is there? It's just Moses morning until evening. He's sort of made full circle, hasn't he? All right. What else do you know? Look back at chapter 17. Verse one, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped on Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, now, what's the difference between quarreling and grumbling? Quarreling is what you do to his face, and it's it's reasonable, you know, you quarrel. But grumbling is what? Grumbling is where you go subterranean into private and you begin to create, to foment, rebellion. All right? They quarrel and they realize they aren't going to get their way. Then they begin to grumble. Okay? They grumbled against Moses and says, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt? What? You take your newborn daughter and you're just filled with the joy of life. You put her in your hands and you throw her up in the air because you're a dad. And your wife says what to you? Are you trying to kill her? Look what they say. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Yes, Moses. Yes, Moses says to them, that's precisely why I brought you out of Egypt, because I wanted to kill you and your children and your livestock. And that's what leaders are like. The reason I'm saying. uh, All right, moving on. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will what? They will stone me. Now, what was Moses doing in the next chapter? Huh? What was he doing? These people that were going to stone him that said that he wanted to kill their children? You know, I've read a lot of bad things about President Bush, but I have not yet read anybody accusing him of wanting to kill their children. Now, you might say, well, what's the war in Iraq? Nobody has accused him, though, of wanting to kill their children. Accuse him of, you know, sacrificing soldiers. But, I mean, kill my children is pretty personal. (laughs) You know, that's what they're saying. And then Moses says to God, you better get me off the hook or they're actually going to stone me. And nobody has threatened to stone President Bush. I don't think. All right. Now, this is the man who it tells us in chapter 18 verse 13 the people stood about moses from the morning until the evening now when moses father-in-law in in other words moses is an excellent 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 man to have leading you he's excellent you know can you imagine giving your entire day your father-in-law has just shown up if there's a day if there's ever an excuse for a family vacation your father-in-law showed up with your wife and your kids and the next day he's what morning till evening, listening to the complaints and judging between them. It's a nasty business being a judge. Now, when Moses father-in-law saw all that was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning to evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to inquire of God when they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Notice here that um, he doesn't make known to him his opinions, but he makes known to them what God's statutes and laws. Okay. Moses, father-in-law said to him, the thing that you're doing isn't good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of home fellowship groups. Okay? That's what we're doing. It was intentional. That's why you have home fellowship groups so that you have leaders of 10. And if your home fellowship group is 25, you've got a problem. All right. And it says what? It says, let them judge the people at all times, verse 22, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. All right, a few closing principles. Number one, the bad... Actions and behavior and sins of leaders does not mean that you can be independent of leaders. You have to have leaders. And it doesn't mean that God is done having authority. There will always be authority. The only question is what authority you'll be under. As parents' authority is diminished, it's like a seesaw, as parents' authority is diminished over children whose authority grows always the state. Do you understand that? The only question is who the children will be under. They'll either be under their natural sovereigns, fathers and mothers, or they will be under the state. And as the state's authority goes up, the authority of parents goes down. Do you understand this? This is why microfinance is a danger. Because microfinance gives all the loans to women, none to men. And so what happens is the order of the woman, instead of submitting to her husband, she submits to whom? Let me tell you, she does submit. The average microfinance interest rate is 50 to 120% a year on these little loans. She will submit to the bank, she'll submit to the the NGO, she'll submit to whoever owns her loan, and she'll submit to the government of her country. She'll submit to the United Nations, she'll submit to the World Health Organization, she'll submit to the International Monetary Fund. Do you understand this? There is no such thing as being out from under authority. The only question is whose authority you'll be under, and whether that authority will be benevolent or a machine. All right. So number one, we have authority. It's always there. It's inexorable. You cannot escape it. And the only question is, who will escape? Who will exercise it over you? Number two, if you're going to have authority, what kind of authority do you want? And I'm going to say that there are two principles here. One principle is the principle of subsidiarity. And you go, whoa, what's that? It's a Roman Catholic term. And it is the notion that authority should always be handled on as low a level, as decentralized a level as it can be handled. Does that make sense to you? Do you remember what the word federal government used to mean? Subsidiarity is here because it's ten, it's hundreds, it's thousands. That's subsidiarity. Anything that can be handled on the local level should be handled on the local level. And then the second thing is the character of the leaders. It says three things about them. What does it say? Okay? Verse 21. Men who what? Number one. What does it say? Look at your Bibles. What does it say? Verse 21. Who fear God, men of, come on, men of, and three men who what? Hate a bribe, hate dishonest gain. Now, what could we do with Africa? If we had men in leadership who feared God, who loved the truth, and who hated bribes. What could we do with K Street in Washington? Where all the lobbyists are. If we had men in government who feared God, who loved the truth, and who hated bribes, what could we do with Bloomington? What could we do with a church if we had elders who feared God, loved the truth, and hated dishonest gain? What could we do with a pastor if we had a pastor who did not want to be an idol to evangelicals, who would not allow video screens to promote his handsome visage, who did not demand half a million dollars as an advance for his next book? And you say, oh, none of our leaders do that. You bet your booties they do that. (laughs) I come from publishing. We select our leaders by how handsome they are, don't we? And we select them by whether they're able to lead us in our delusions just a little bit deeper. Whether on the television set it looks like they're rich because all their furniture is gilted in gold. Whether the woman that they touch on the platform explodes backwards. And whether all the men waiting to catch her are handsome and well-dressed. I mean, think about it. This is us. You say, oh, not us. I say, oh, come on. This is us. Where do you think Trinity Broadcasting Network is getting its money? It's getting its money from people who have absolutely no commitment to having as leaders only men who what? Come on, who fear God, who love the truth, and who hate. And every evangelical is willing to have the first two as long as we can leave the third one off. But it's never enough to say yes. You have to say no and they hate dishonest gain now we're having the ordination of installation of men this morning we believe men are called to lead just as Moses appointed men we believe today that men are to discipline other men women shouldn't discipline other men since the office of of elder is an office that is ruling and government they spend a lot of their time disciplining men that's why we don't have women in the eldership that's why God doesn't allow us to have women in the eldership because men have to discipline other men, okay? We do have women discipline women in this church. They're called Titus II women, and they do discipline women in the church, but they don't discipline men, except their husbands. And actually, there are women in this church who do discipline me, but it's not out of an office and it's organic. It's like Priscilla and Aquila, you know? It's like Rita Cuffey, who would correct me. So it's not that we look down on women, their brains, their wisdom, their godliness, but we don't allow women to discipline other men out of an office in this church. Now, who are the men that we, have in or that we are going to ordain and install? If they would come forward at this time, please.